This is a conversation with Rudy Duan, an academic at Harvard University, on the historic links between Mao Zedong and Maoism in relation to black radicals. We'll discuss the history of, in the 1960s, how Mao and China built links to black radicals and revolutionary movements around the world, how obstacles were encountered between revolutionaries who envisioned either black nationalism or worldwide revolution, and the limits of a Chinese state that eventually came to see black radicals not as comrades in a language of universal brotherhood, but instead as instruments through which they could advance the interests of the Chinese state. We'll then try to discuss and draw links to contemporary China, where anything that dares to challenge either the Communist Party or its global interests is swiftly met by the twin hammers of censorship or carcerality. Where did the utopian vision that many black radicals saw once in China go? And why do we see none of that same revolutionary fever or spirit in Xi Jinping's China? This will also touch upon China's historic and contemporary links to Africa, as well as how the USSR and China's relationship led to tensions, splits, and divisions within revolutionaries around the world. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. We're on Apple, Android, and Spotify. And you can go to our main website, asiaarttours.com. We host interviews, art, and artists from around the world. Here's our conversation with Rudy Duan. I hope you enjoy. My name is Rudy, and I'm a PhD student in the history department at Harvard University based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And my dissertation research is very broadly about Asian-African connections in the Cold War in the 60s, in, in the 1960s and 1970s. When we look back at history, um, Mao leading a rebellion against the nationalists of China, the Black Panthers. What did violence mean for these both of these groups? And where through your study have you found sort of the mystification doesn't match, you know, power grows out of the barrel of the gun? How did they talk about violence and what would that actually look like on the ground in terms of how these groups practiced violence? So the Chinese leadership in the 1950s and 1960s imagined African-Americans as the vanguard of a larger, of a large-scale anti-capitalist revolution that they believed would remake the United States. And this revolution, um, in line with the Maoist theory about how political power grows out of the barrel of a gun, like you quoted, this revolution would be violent and predicated on the assumption that it's the culmination of a growing linear revolutionary consciousness among African-Americans. 
And along this line, Mao's August 1963, um, this was a very public statement and it was delivered in support of the quote-unquote Afro-American struggle against racial discrimination, reprinted in both Chinese and English language press. It referenced organized efforts to integrate public schools in Little Rock, the assassination of civil rights activist Medgar Evers in Mississippi, the freedom riders across the South, all of that as mounting evidence of a unstoppable trajectory in which anti-Black state violence in the United States could only be resolved with a violent revolution on the part of um, Black activists. And within the United States, a number of events in the 1960s, like the assassination of Malcolm X in February 1965, the radicalization of existing civil rights organizations like the Student Nonviolent Action Committee, SNCC, and international events as well, like African decolonization, they also helped to, they all helped to escalate Black power politics and a certain kind of Black power politics that had a powerful internationalist component to it. I think this trend was what really intersected with the Chinese narrative of an of this inevitable turn to revolution, revolutionary violence in the United States. And this is why the unflinching rhetoric of an activist like Robert Williams, who was in the 1950s, was a NAACP leader in North Carolina. And after his efforts to organize for desegregation ended up in exile in Cuba and then in China in the 1960s. So why he was so popular in China was that his rhetoric and his advocacy of armed self-defense were really appealing and really lined up with the Maoist theory of social change. And Williams's 1962 book, Negroes with Guns, which would also become very popular with leaders of other Black radical organizations later on, like the Revolutionary Action Movement and the Black Panther Party, was quickly translated into Chinese and published in China shortly after it came out in the United States. So then on the concept of revolutionary violence, I think there was a lot of important theoretical overlap, like the Black Panthers in the late 1960s would quote directly that Mao says political power grows out of the barrel of a gun, but then there was also, and this is important, a major gulf of understanding in that China was supportive of African-American protest, but only a rigid definition of it, and only as a means to an end, the end being class revolution. So Mao saw the US civil rights and black power movements as a instrument of class struggle, Whereas people like Robert Williams had found the Chinese Revolution and all of its social and economic developments attractive on racial terms, because China was a non-white country and on certain counts proved itself more receptive to the language and ideas of racial nationalism, of Black nationalism and Black power 
than its than other alternatives in the socialist world like the Soviet Union. I'm wondering when you when you look through these periods of history, both with sort of Mao's victory and the brutal uh, assassinations uh, against uh, figures like the Black Panthers, where do you come down in terms of a scholar on um, how successful they were at using violence, I guess, is, is the blunt way to ask that question. So I think it's when it comes to Mao and his ideas about revolutionary violence, as it applied to the United States, I think for sure he thought that it was this very progressive, very linear trajectory to some kind of anti-capitalist liberation that would use violence and violence would be a point of no return. This is why the 1960s urban uprisings, the racial uprisings in the United States were observed from China with great interest. They were frequently, they frequently made the pages of the People's Daily and other newspapers and were celebrated because I think from that theoretical understanding, violence was the point of no return and it was good. It meant that this larger structure, in this case, um, capitalism in the United States would come down. But I think when we are looking at, say, the turn to Black power, and this is a, I think, kind of a mismatch between Black power activists and China in the 1960s, is that the civil rights movement, what we traditionally conceive of as the civil rights movement and the Black power movement, are very much intimately entwined. And many historians have written about this, about how there was a sharing of tactics um, of major figures. So like Robert Williams himself had come, come up in the civil rights movement. He was the leader of his local NAACP in North Carolina. And that there was this intermixing that usually um, that, that, that is easy to forget sometimes. Um, how Maoism, how Mao understood African-American revolution didn't quite reflect what was happening on the ground. And I'm wondering if you could sort of explain why we would see some Black radicals stick with the USSR, some Black radicals um, become very alienated from the USSR. What were the tensions with between the USSR and China that led to seeming schisms between how um, black radicals, both in uh, the United States, but also in the Caribbean and Africa, were sort of forced to choose sides? And I know that's a long uh, process, but you can take as much time as you'd like, because I, I didn't really understand it before looking into this. I think the actual heart of conflict between China and the USSR in the 1960s was more minute than, and, and almost less important than what China then projected to be the difference between itself and the USSR as they 
really struggled with each other for influence in Asia and Africa and the entire post-colonial world. And how China projected this difference was that the Chinese state was sensitive to issues of race and racism and racial discrimination because they were a non-white country that had once experienced Western imperialism and through class revolution realized that was for them the tried and true path to liberation, to national liberation, that they then welcomed people in other Asian and African countries and territories to try. And I think this is why the relationship with African-American activists was so powerful, was strong in the 1960s, because they wanted Chinese leaders and officials wanted to prove that they were more progressive when it came to race, more empathetic not only more so than the Soviet Union, but taking a step back, there were a lot of socialist actors who were trying to fight this, this who, who, who were a factor in the struggle for influence in the third world. So there was also Cuba, where Robert Williams was before he went to China. Um, East Germany was a major actor in many parts of Africa and a lot of the other Eastern European states as well. So it was kind of a intra-socialist world, not just US and USSR, um, struggle for hegemony and power. And I think how it, how, how the Chinese state tried to project that struggle was that it had a lot to do with race and racism. And where it, it gets then like even more complicated is you'll have quotes, you know, they're not from people I would consider good faith. So like Kissinger, where he would, I, I think I think it's Kissinger. Maybe it's just because I don't like Kissinger, but you can correct me. Uh, where he would say things like, uh, you know, like Mao personally was not as committed to racial struggle. He sort of, just saw it as uh, somewhat instrumental. Um, and I don't, obviously it's not going to be that um, A or B binary, but for black radicals who spent extensive time in China, for literature that the state has canonized, so China as a state is constantly sort of policing its discourse. It's sort of official state discourse about what is what is China, what is not part of China. Certain historical events are canonized, certain historical events are scrubbed. Figures jump in and out, you know, of being uh, heroes and villains based on uh, the political present. For China um, at the time of Mao, but also now in the present day, what legacy or impact do we see that um, black radicals made on the China's on China's Communist Party? Where do we see them having actually succeeded in 
making dialogue as opposed to, let's say, being used as symbols uh, for the state? Certainly, the ideas and the images of Black resistance in the United States left an imprint on Chinese culture and politics of the Mao era. The mid-1960s in China really witnessed the emergence of African-American history as an academic field of study, using a lot of Marxism-Leninism, but also its own theories about social change and history. And that continues to be a field of study today, so I think that's one arena in which there's been an imprint that has persisted. But more specific to the 1960s, there was also just a whole wave of cultural productions in China in art and literature and dance that dealt with the subject of racial discrimination in the US and Black resistance. So in my own research, I've been really fascinated by a Chinese performance dance piece from 1964. And it's called The Fires of Fury Are Burning in Chinese. Um, it's Nu Huo Zai Ran Shou. And I mention it because if you're interested, um, you can just plug it into Baidu and there's a video of, th of this piece from 1964. It was choreographed by people from the People's Liberation Army. And the entire dance drama, it's about a, it chronicles a group a, of primarily African-American protesters and some white allies in their confrontation with this very villainous white police officer who, as the drama proceeds, is then unmasked as a member of the local KKK. And this is just one example of the pieces, the productions that were out in China around this time. Um, another very big one was the 1959 feature-length play, Hatred of Black Slaves. In Chinese, it's Hei Nu Hen. And it's based on Uncle Tom's Cabin, which itself is the first English language novel to be translated into Chinese at the turn of the 20th century. And this play from 1959 had debuted to um, a lot of acclaim in Shanghai. And there were a lot, so many stories and narratives of racial violence and uprising that were prevalent in Chinese news and media from roughly the early 1960s or the late 1950s up to the early 1970s, such that when, uh, when African-American novelist John Oliver Killens visited China in 1976, he recalled and he was shocked that this happened, that a young Chinese woman had gone up to him just to say that she knew him. She had once read a book about a, no, 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 this woman went up to him to say that she had read a book about a Black veteran who faced police violence in Georgia. And why Killens was so surprised is because this turned out to be a Chinese translation of his own novel from 1963, which was titled, And Then We Heard the Thunder. So I think in looking at at Chinese culture and politics in the 1960s, there was a lot of interchange. Some of that 
is forgotten after this, this moment of intense political borrowing, but some of it, um, like, like within the university, this more academic study, I think that has a legacy that continues today. And for um, the United States, how did then we see this uh, flip side? So, you know, Huey Newton and the Panthers selling Mao's Red Book, um, then that mutated into Earl Afari Hutchinson's Black Book, figures like Amiri Baraka, like explicitly incorporating sort of Maoism into their work. Um, and really interestingly, and not discussed often, figures like Du Bois, you know, now canonized, basically a saint of, of uh, American uh, history scholarship. At, at, but at a period of his life, completely alienated from academia, feeling betrayed, uh, going to China, and perhaps with not a lens as sharp as, a, as what we see in Black Reconstruction, but mistakes aside, feeling very um, reinvigorated and, and writing about his time in China. How did we see this cultural flow and borrowing uh, within Black radicals um, in the United States? So I think the impact of Maoism and Chinese socialism on Black radicalism happened both in terms of political strategy and in terms of culture. So Robin Kelly, for example, has a really brilliant article grappling with this question of impact and borrowing from a while back called Black Like Mao, Red China and Black Revolution, you probably came across it as well. Um, so Kelly explains that there are certain aspects, theoretical aspects of Maoism that rendered it very appealing. So namely that there is no need to wait for the conditions to make revolution right, this revolutionary urgency, um, guerrilla warfare, mm -hmm. and lastly, the emphasis on cultural struggle, all of which then proved really formative for Black radicals in the United States in the 1960s. And because of that, just as the Chinese state believed that African Americans were the revolutionary vanguard for the U.S., a number of Black power activists, um, Robert Williams, definitely, but also, like you mentioned, Amiri Baraka, Vicky Garvin, Malcolm X. They saw China as a part of the global progressive vanguard. And I think it can be easy to dismiss the legacies of Maoism on Black radicalism as something that happened on the fringe, right, on the margins. But I think that's why it's important to see it as to also see the strategic contributions of, of Maoism, some of which happened past, it, it persisted past um, the specter of US-China rapprochement in the 1970, in, in 1972, um, and the disintegration of many left organizations in the 1970s. And I say this because when it comes to the Black Panther Party, they drew inspiration for many of their community programs 
from the Maoist concept of the mass line, Mao's call to serve the people. And they also believe that Mao's decision to receive Richard Nixon in 1972 was not so much a betrayal of the revolutionary cause as it was a lesson about the necessity of redefining revolution. And in turn, the example of China um, really legitimated for them this turn to community service and electoral politics that really defined the Black Panther Party at the tail end of the 1960s and the early 1970s. Um, going on to the realm of culture, as you had brought up earlier, um, so many of the African-American artists like Earl Ofari Hutchinson that is associated with what we um, what is known as the Black Arts Movement of the 1960s and 1970s felt that China's great proletarian cultural revolution, which began in 1966, was aspirational. Since the call of the cultural revolution to overturn the old social and cultural order really meshed with um, the desire of Black radicals to recast the arts as a building block politically of revolution and to undo the internalization of mainstream or white aesthetic and cultural norms. And that's why Amiri Baraka, since, and, and, and this is based on Mao's 1942 talks at the Yan'an Forum about how art is political, he titled, he named um, the theater workshop that he ran in New York in the 19, in the 1970s, the Yenan Theater Workshop. I mean, history is interesting because really the, the sort of flipping and flopping of heroes and villains, acceptable and non-acceptable, is really interesting to watch. And uh, Sina Du Bois right now, who's cited in like every single podcast on the issues going on in the United States, or the, the framework that he articulated in Black Reconstruction. And then to compare that to the historical moment when he went to China, where this is like a man who's been hunted by the United States, so battles over his passport, um, harassed constantly, but also feels seemingly abandoned by black-led organizations in the United States because of uh, either their own internal skepticism about socialism or Marxism or Maoism, but also because of state pressure. Um, William Worthy, who's much more liberal, I think, if, if we had to, for my understanding of William Worthy's work is this outstanding black journalist, this, this really like this pioneer, it seems like for journalism period in terms of the scope of his basically like, well, why can't I talk about this just because the United States doesn't like it, of going to countries that were socialist or um, exploring, uh, aligning themselves with the USSR and China. Also ostracized seemingly from a lot of black-led institutions, as well as the state, just like Du Bois, harassed nonstop about his passport. Could you explain a little bit of this tension of why... Um, these articulations of liberation from a Mao or the sympathy that, that Mao um, and at points of time in history, the USSR or Cuba offered black radicals, how did that divide 
the black radical community or the civil rights movement itself. I'm glad you mentioned William Worthy because he's definitely an example. And, and Worthy was an African-American journalist who was the first from the United States, I think, to visit the People's, the People's Republic of China, which he did in 1956. And this was in violation of the travel restrictions that were placed by the U.S. State Department. And he ended up having all sorts of passport troubles after his, his return from China. And I think his application for a renewal of his passport was denied because he had gone to China. Um, but not just Worthy, also people like Paul Robeson really faced criticism um, and persecution for their more explicit sympathies with causes like Chinese socialism. And I think this is important to grapple with because views on Maoism, on socialism, more broadly, were far from uniform among Black activists in this period from the 1950s to the early or mid-1970s because there were such intense Cold War fears and pressures within the United States. We think about the Red Scare, right? that were manifested in the campaigns of segregationist politicians, usually from the South, to characterize, to paint the whole of the civil rights movement as an extension of international communism. So many civil rights activists were responding to those pressures. And many of them, like the leaders of the NAACP, became more allied with anti-communist liberalism. And there was also a camp of more hardliner Black Marxists who were affiliated with the Communist Party USA. Um, this would be people like James Jackson, who um, ran the Daily Worker. Um, he was married to Esther, Esther Cooper Jackson, who published Freedom Ways, which was this key theoretical journal of Black radicalism. So they were a part of this camp of more Soviet-allied Black Marxists who believed that, that the Sino-Soviet split and these Chinese accusations of quote-unquote Soviet revisionism was a betrayal of this most important cause of international socialist unity. So there's, there, there's many moving factions to this, um, to this relationship between China and African-American activists during the Cold War. And so much of that was in response to Cold War fictions, of uh, Cold War frictions and Cold War pressures. Where do we see like sort of an actual, this mythical solidarity, camaraderie? You know, there are no borders, there's only brothers. And where do we see, unfortunately, just like uh, the early shaping of Obor, the early realization from China that Africa... Uh, that uh, to weaken your enemies is, is strategically advantageous, to in show sympathy for black liberation is a great way to bring in 
Chinese investment, Chinese connections to these uh, huge pools of labor and resources in places like Africa. Angola seems to be in a lot of the scholarship uh, that I read in preparation to speak to you, like a flashpoint in terms of where state instrumentalism won out over an internationalist vision. But could you describe these sort of tensions between the heart and mind within the Communist Party? And were there sort of these ferocious debates over, let's say, and if you could maybe dive into this specifically, because I think it's such a strong example, could you maybe talk about this through the framework of what happened in Angola and how it may be decided um, the fate of, of how the Communist Party would eventually evolve to see and use uh, black radicals or blackness for its own strategic advantages? So at an earlier point, so China in the 1960s, solidarity with Africa and African Americans was the political strategy because race was, and, and I mentioned this earlier, race was such an important facet of this contestation with other players in the socialist world for influence in Asia and Africa. And I think one example that really highlights this tension in the 1960s is how Robert Williams decided to relocate from Cuba to China in 1966. It was because of the conflicts that he had with Fidel Castro's regime on account of race he believed that Castro wasn't as supportive of the language or objectives of Black nationalism as he would have liked him to be, that there were restrictions placed on his political activities, and that race relations in Cuba as it pertained to the experiences of Afro-Cubans was never as Castro claimed. And during his time in Cuba, he had visited China twice in 1963 and 1964, and he felt like there was a big contrast between the greater platform that it seemed like he was more readily given in China and how he experienced Cuba. Of course, once you do a close reading of the relationship between Robert Williams and the Chinese Communist Party, it becomes clear that Chinese support for Black nationalism wasn't so readily given either. And Chinese officials, even in condemning racial oppression, like to emphasize that racism was an extension of a larger class problem. And Williams was subject to heavy political ideological surveillance during his time there, but he also did receive many opportunities to stand shoulder to shoulder with Mao atop the Tiananmen Gate for public ceremonies and rallies. He was able to deliver these speeches that were calling for, in his words, the thunder of Black power to come to the United States. And this existed definitely in tension with what is in the Chinese record about officials trying very hard to get Williams to de-emphasize racial nationalism and to see that racial nationalism, Black nationalism, would never be enough 
would never be adequate as a solution to racism. It had to be about class. So ironically, and, and, and this is what I'm really interested in, it seemed like the Chinese state at the time built their case for African-Americans um, on Chinese sensitivity to these many dimensions of racial oppression and this fact that China had experienced racism during the Western occupation of different Chinese cities decades earlier and that they understood racism intimately, went through it not too long ago before realizing that class struggle was the only legitimate path forward. That's, that's what we did in their, in, in their thinking. And these tensions, like you said, never, never resolved. They deepened because by the tail end of the 1960s, as the prospect beckoned of U.S.-China rapprochement, and this is really significant in discussing Chinese politics in the 1970s and the shifts to that in China-Africa relations, um, the narrative of African-American resistance also no longer served the same functions, the same symbolic functions that it once did in the domestic Chinese media in the 1960s. So later African-American visitors to China were also, they, they were not celebrated the way that Robert Williams were. They weren't deemed revolutionaries. They were more or less conceptualized as friends. And this is good to understand alongside um, these shifts in China's Africa policy in the 1970s as well. So you mentioned Angola as kind of like a point of crystallization in terms of state and security and economic interests versus um, solidarity. And for sure, that's, that's, that's what happened because China found itself in the Angolan Civil War fighting on the same side as um, as the United States and apartheid South Africa. And that was a far cry from this rhetoric of Afro-Asian solidarity that it really strived to advance in the 1960s. But that was because they just needed to fight against the Soviet Union, no matter which side <laughs> which side the Soviet Union was on. And I think this really loops back also to the strategy in the 1960s of using more sentimental understandings of race to legitimate itself as an international actor and to highlight a perceived weakness on the part of the Soviet Union. It, it, it really was a strategic struggle and for the same reasons why race was once so at the forefront of Chinese discourses, it then later fell to the wayside in the 1970s. And for um, black radicals who are in China, and, and maybe Vicki Garvin is a great sort of micro example because of her teaching 
and her sort of very intimate one-on-one relationships with students. What was what would racism look like in terms of how it existed in China at that time? So what were examples of no, unfortunately, we have to say unequivocally there was there were these examples of racism or racist strands of thought from the China's Communist Party. And how would that be experienced by a black radical um, visiting China at some of these points in history? I was very fascinated to find in the municipal archives in Shanghai a couple of summers ago the record of a document that circulated among local authorities in 1956 that was titled To Pay Attention to Black Visitors. And in direct quotes from my own translation, what it said was that, quote, our government and our people extend our deepest respect to Black people because they experience the same oppression under imperialism as we once did and carry on the same brave long-term struggle against imperialism. But we also have some individuals who, because they have never interacted with Black visitors, lack understanding or out of curiosity, instigated various incidents in Shanghai in which they did not treat them with respect or politeness. This includes onlookers laughing at them, shrieking loudly, and housewives not wanting to shake hands with them or attempting to keep their children away from them. So just from, from, from documents like that, I think there is definitely evidence that on a more popular, more interaction, uh, sorry, more interactive level, there was a big gulf between what the Chinese state tried to project and what was happening at the grassroots. And there was a Ghanaian student in China in the 19, in the early 1960s. His name is John Heavy. He had written, though this must be noted, it was 1965 at the height of the Cold War. It was a book called An African Student in China, based on his experiences, and it was a scathing indictment of how he was treated while there, discussing, among other things, the racism and the intense ideological surveillance that followed him. And you mentioned um, Vicky Garvin earlier. I think someone else whose story could be illuminating in this respect in, in, in this regard about how they personally experienced China, the kinds of opportunities that China opened up, um, as well as the continued limitations that they experienced while there, is the story of Clarence Adams, who was an African-American prisoner of war who chose to remain in China in the 1950s instead of being repatriated back to the United States after the Korean War. And Adams in the 1950s and 1960s ends up making a life in China. He works for the Foreign Languages Press and marries a Chinese woman. He attains the kind of professional freedom and respect that he couldn't have had in Tennessee where he had grown up. But in his memoir, Adams recalls that it was also during his time at the Foreign Languages Press that he was able to consume these American publications 
like Time and Life and Newsweek, magazines that kept him informed about the progress of the civil rights movement. And from Beijing, he celebrated the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act as an indication that his mixed-race family could live safely in his hometown. And it was this fact that, start, that, that spurred him to begin thinking about resettling in the United States. But what really sealed his decision to leave China was the suspicion the ire that he drew from Chinese authorities after the Cultural Revolution in 1966. Adams lived with Chinese people. He was married to a Chinese woman. And once the authorities knew about this relationship, Adams was interrogated. He was removed from his post at the Foreign Languages Press and dispatched to work at a textile mill in Shandong province. And reasonably, Deeply frustrated by this curtailing of his personal political freedoms, Adam soon negotiated a return to the United States with his wife and children. So I think certainly China was very much an imperfect experience for a number of Black visitors, not just from the U.S., but um, also African students and diplomats. And it's important that we take a step back and understand all of that together. Africa, you know, is really interesting to me. I mentioned April Chu and her work. Um, there's actually quite a bit of really interesting scholarship on the relationship between China and Africa. Um, and I'm wondering to, to sort of bring us to the tail end of our questions, for um, the Communist Party's logic uh, at the time of Mao and, and continuing on, um, through Deng Xiaoping, do we, and, and into the present, do we have a sense of how um, China uh, used its strategy of, of uh, claiming allyship with black liberation or black radicals as a way to gain market access to Africa? And how have you seen this process evolve as China has solidified as a state, moved away from aligning itself with radicals over fear of sort of um, that this logic could lead to criticism or radical methods being used against the party. How do you see a continuation from Mao to Xi uh, in terms of how China has used uh, the language of racial tolerance or brotherhood as a way to gain market access? I think one important difference between the Mao era and this, this present moment is that the Chinese state was at the time in the 1960s deeply invested in perfecting and projecting this discourse of racial equality and tolerance and Afro-Asian solidarity in a way that we see a little bit of that today, but I think the Chinese state is not really clamping down on the virulent anti-Black racism that's expressing itself, for example, on Chinese social media networks and platforms. And, and this really contrasts with, for example, those efforts in the 1950s 
to at the municipal level for officials to be like okay some of so, so, some of our citizens in shanghai isn't behaving with respect towards visitors from africa and we need to rectify that i i, I don't think the same thing is happening today mm -hmm. and in terms of triangulating this relationship between African Americans, um, between, sorry, between China and African Americans in Africa, I think this was always a, a, a relationship that had all of these components to it. Um, so for example, why Vicky Garvin came to China was because she had met and befriended the Chinese ambassador in Ghana, Huanghua, while she was living in Ghana and was able to secure this teaching post. And she had wanted to leave Ghana because of the political instability that was happening in the early mid 1960s. And a number of other, a, a, a number of, well, even Robert Williams, as he was first contemplating leaving China in 1968, he first considered moving his family to Tanzania, which China and Tanzania had had a close relationship since the early 1960s. And he spent six months there in 1968, in which he 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 was negotiating with some um with with a number of black radicals from the united states who were affiliated with the republic of new Af africa this black nationalist separatist organization so i think when we're looking at 1960s connections between african americans and china china africa relations was never far from the picture and in the present day, though, I think, yeah, yeah, like I was saying earlier, I think the key difference is that the Chinese state has, is, is no longer prioritizing so much this rhetoric of Afro-Asian solidarity and racial empathy. Mm -hmm. And it's shocking when you look at your work or Dr. Frazier's work or um, the anthology uh, Fred Ho put together. Um, Fred Ho's smart. I wish he was still around. That was an interesting man. Um, but all these uh, visions of what could have been like international solidarity compared now to um, uh, episodes of racism in Guangzhou against Africans, uh, a very muted... Uh, if if almost non-existent support for Black Lives Matter um, and just the sort of solidifying and the maintenance of the state over all other concerns. Um, it's uh, night and day compared to, you know, a Huey meeting Mao. <laughs> um, um, really, really different. Um, well, actually, Huey wanted to meet Mao, but he wasn't able to because by that okay. time, I don't yeah. think China was prioritizing cultivating its relationship with Black power activists the way that they were 
a few years earlier, he was only he he was able to meet with Joe and Lai. He sure. personally requested, "I really want to meet with Mao," but that that just didn't happen because by 1972, on the verge of Nixon's visit, it was just no longer a priority, state to state wise. To be so close with these black nationalists, I always wonder, like sort of the limits of states.、Uh, I am much more interested in a world without borders.、Um, that the limits of international solidarity will always be blunted when you have states as the dominant framework through which human society organizes itself. For you studying these. Sort of topics. How did it inform or continue to inform your own understanding of how the world is organized? Do you, from studying these things, did it make you much more skeptical of things like liberalism, of the idea of communism if communism is held within a state?、Um, how did studying this sort of How could you study this for this long and not come out just,、uh, <laughs> you know, what I guess、um, I, I studying these sorts of things, I became very skeptical of the way the world is, and I don't want to project that onto you, but I I can ask without projection, how did studying these sorts of things cause you to reflect on concepts like liberalism or capitalism、uh, or Solidarity within the framework of the nation state. I think, like you, it's definitely made me more skeptical as well. So it seems like borders were porous, just historically speaking, right? We、um, think about like Robert Williams and Vicky Garvin and、right. Clarence Adams and. And and W. E. B. Du Bois and all these people in China and Cuba or other parts of the socialist world, really breaking these ideological and nation-state boundaries. So I think it's important to see that they were porous, but at the same time, they do allow their existence allow for a kind of policing. Right of movement and politics and alignments, as we see with the persecution of people like the the troubles that were confronted by people like William Worthy and Paul Robeson because of their their allegiances and and in the case of Worthy certainly、um, because of his travels right his movements. I'm just I'm totally with you. <laughs> <laughs> I think sustained study into this would make many people very, very skeptical. You know,、uh, David Harvey, I love you, but you you got to be on the all cops are bad train, or that's where I get off with you.、Um, or all jails are bad, all prisons are bad. There's been a lot of, I think, stupidity in the U.S. left in terms of how it's viewed China.、Um, And I'm wondering, rather than these sort of frameworks of Marxist-Leninism or anti-imperialism, which even through the history of Mao's China was, you know, incredibly convoluted when we look at Africa, 
and China's strategic vision. Do you have a sense of um, if, if a framework of abolition could sort of cut through this Gordian knot um, that particularly Western leftists will twist themselves into in trying to defend China? Is it a, a much more simple heuristic when we look at a China or Russia or anywhere where we can say, look, you're either on the side of all cops are bad or I'm sorry, I have to get off this ideological train with you? No, I, I think abolition is definitely a a valid framework for understanding this larger context because it's because because as a concept, right, it's so broad. I'm thinking about how historically when we take a step back what this bigger picture, right, of what we've talked about today, I think what it shows is that the issue of racism in the United States um, and the resistance to racism, to racial oppression, had throughout the 20th century a lot of political purchase in so many other places. Um, especially in context of the Cold War. So namely China in the 1960s, but also at times in the Soviet Union, in Cuba, and even in Imperial Japan decades before that. So this question of anti-Black racism and racial justice, it's in this moment seemingly contained to the United States, but it really reverberates globally right now in many places, and it has such significant purchase, right, significant agency. And I think abolition is something that it is a lens that would be broad enough to understand how the singular how, how, how these issues, right, of race and racism in the United States have taken on so many international dimensions and have become the subject of contestation and uh, of popular contestation in unexpected places. So I'm, I'm not sure if this makes sense, but what I like about it is that it's so big and it allows us to understand, how, it allows us to see that just as race in the US has become such a contested issue, so, so do other things like, like human rights in China, right? That's, that's so controversial. And it's really taken on a life of its own in the United States and in other places, especially in the West. Well, I was just thinking for things like Fanon and like the lumpen proletariat uh, and some of the literature of black radicals, um, Fanon in particular comes to mind. But do you see um, where uh, Black Lives Matter and the protests that are happening uh, in the U.S. find dialogue? with some of the instances of oppression currently happening in China. So Tibet, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, 
and um, unfortunately, probably Taiwan um, soon, sooner or later. Do you have a sense from your own um, study how we could take someone like a Fanon or take someone um, like a Robert Williams and sort of uh, say, well, this was a dream betrayed and we can look at them as uh, China having sort of broken a promise of being a friend of liberation, now using their words or insights to critique um, China that's on a path that's very different from the one that Mao was potentially exploring? Yes and no. Um, only because, and, and, and my reservation to say that is only, to, to saying that is only because, as we had discussed earlier, there was a lot of strategy and political opportunism to these demonstrations of racial solidarity during the Cold War. There were all of these Cold War exigencies that undergirded those sentiments. And the political exigencies of the present day are different, right? Global capitalism is different. So mm -hmm. I think it would appear to have betrayed that legacy, right? To have moved far away from it. But I think upon closer examination, the impulse is the same, but the expression is different because the political and economic landscape, right, internationally has changed so much. For your study of the civil rights era, and even within, I guess actually civil rights era, it's pretty well documented that liberals and more radicals work together. And that even itself, the civil rights era has been um, co-opted in a lot of ways to phase out or erase the notions of radical self-defense like a Robert Williams uh, uh, or Robin Kelly has, you know, talked about, a lot of scholars have talked about that, no, like people had guns because the Klan was trying to kill them. Within um, China, for, for the conflict, the civil war, did any of this also come up as well? Were there Mao's sort of um, uh, commitment to violence or to revolutionary um, actions? Was there also a place for people who were peaceful? Okay, so in the 1960s, so at the height of global Maoism, Mao was not a big fan of Martin Luther King because of his professed allegiance to nonviolent protest um, in different places in Chinese newspapers, media. Martin Luther King would be referred to as um, a number of terms akin to like a collaborator with the racist U.S. regime or an Uncle Tom, someone who just who, who had the wrong understanding of things and wasn't willing to step up. So I think theoretically in Maoism, there is little space for nonviolent protest. 
but that's why civil rights activists looked to a number of places, right, internationally. So not just places that had violent revolutions like China and Cuba, but also India, right? There's a long history of interconnection between um, Indian nationalists and African-American activists. So I think from, from the ledge of Maoism, there's not that much space for violence, uh, sorry, for nonviolence. Um, and we see that reflected, I think, in its, in, in, in its treatment of Dr. King. Um, but I think the Black freedom movements in the U.S., right, the long civil rights movement was much more complicated than that. And that was the shortcoming in Chinese understandings of racial liberation in the U.S. Do you have a sense of how in this moment of history where we don't have state allies, you know, even if Mao was um, not good faith or was instrumentalized these struggles for his own political gain, as we've discussed, um, he was still useful, I think, for a, uh, a lot of black radicals, both in terms of his cultural influence, uh, but also sort of the safe haven. Um, that he, he gave a lot of black radicals and also sort of just as sort of an imaginary um, figure, uh, an, an imaginary antagonist to the white supremacy of the United States. Um, that um, we don't have that now. Um, we don't really have a China or really any country that even in pantomime will full-throatedly be a friend of quote unquote, the people, you know, the masses. Um, we're all on our apps delivering food <laughs> um, until we die seemingly, be it in Beijing or Boston. And uh, this, this state really seems to, globally seems to be amping up sort of security and um, uh, carcerality in ways where there, there there's, the 60s are not coming back, even as much as, as we'd like them to, um, in terms of the, the revolutionary fever, and obviously not in terms of the racism uh, that has never been addressed fully. For conflicts like a Hong Kong uh, and a Black Lives Matter, for you um, and, and the work of people like Dr. Eli Friedman, who we mentioned before, you know, we're looking into Chinese activists suffer, you know, when they go against the state. Um, I encountered Dr. Friedman through his work in, on Xiangzi's case, the, uh, I think it's Guangzhou organizer who worked mostly with um, uh, sanitation workers. Do you have a sense from your historical scholarship, um, as well as it seemingly not being, falling into the trap of a lot of people who might be uh, people who say the enemy of the U.S. is the friend of liberation. Do you have a sense of how we can better connect these struggles or if it's important to do so? I think it's definitely important that we do so, right? That we connect these struggles 
because like you've identified, right, we're in a particular moment where there are few state allies and this is very different in the 1960s. I liked how you how you um, termed Mao as a useful imaginary antagonist. Um, I, yeah, I, I think we're definitely in in a moment where activists and scholars, observers, right? We we would all benefit from understanding this global context more broadly, right? Thinking about this political moment that we all inhabit and also just in terms of social movements, right? Thinking across borders in terms of like strategies and tactics. I remember, so I spent a part of the summer of 2019 in Hong Kong and I was really taken aback by just how powerful it was to see such a multi-generational protest, right? It wasn't just young people, it wasn't just students, it was also so many working people, older people who cared deeply about the political and economic future of Hong Kong. And I'm not from Hong Kong. Um, I don't have family there or stakes there, nor do I have much training in the theory of social movements. But just speaking as an observer, it was so powerful to see. And I think if, yeah, I, I, I think it would be powerful if we did. Um, yeah, I, I think more broadly speaking, it's urgent, right, that we do that work of, in terms of social movements, thinking broadly about our objectives and how we're going to get there. Sort of globally, but without countries. Yeah. Yeah, as you were saying before. Mm -hmm.